Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes, joined by the editor of the Bulwark, Jonathan Last. Hey, Jonathan, thanks for joining me. I appreciate it very much. Good morning, Charlie. Just another another normal day in a normal presidential election. Uh, I know. Uh, I want to talk about Bulwark Plus a little bit later because uh, I'm, I'm actually quite jazzed about it. I think you know that. Uh, I'm, I'm really pleased with the way it's it's playing out, and I'm blown away by the response that we've gotten in the first 24 hours. But so we'll talk about that in a little while. But there's a couple of other things that I just I wanted to start with, you know, in, including the whole Joe Biden uh, town hall meeting. Um, you and I have been talking for the last year and a half how there seems to be the the reflex to always underestimate Joe Biden. Um, and every <laughs> and they've been we've been doing this throughout the primary. And OK, so there were moments when he was less than great, where he fumbled. And I think there are some fact checks. But uh, this was not the senile, drooling, can't put together a coherent thought, you know, you know, head on a stick that Donald Trump and his supporters have been promising us, was it? No, it wasn't. He, he especially because it comes the day after the the other Trump town hall that he did with ABC, where Trump himself was just a drooling, blithering idiot who you know couldn't literally couldn't put five words to, together without being just normal words. It's like you know, if you have a country and we're in a country here, you're just like oh my god, what's happening here? But so here's here's the thing. I when I started writing about Joe Biden in in this race. Uh, I, my view was before he even got into the race officially, uh, if he gets in, he will be the presumptive nominee and will be the instant front runner, provided that two things are true. One, that he has not lost control of his fastball. Mm-hmm. And two, that he is willing to fight for the nomination and does not see it as a coronation. And when we saw his very first debate performance, he answered both of those. Was he as sharp as he was in 2012? No, not really. He's probably lost like, you know, 5% or 10%. If you go back and look at his debate with Paul Ryan and his convention speech in 2012. But- but for the most part, he's still the same guy. You know, he's like he's like a, a veteran pitcher, a veteran ace pitcher at the end of his career who doesn't quite, you know, can't hit 99 anymore, mm-hmm. but knows how to beat you by going to spots. And uh, and he was ready to fight. I mean, you look at when Kamala Harris came at him on the, the busing issue with that that set piece attack, his response, it wasn't just that he was prepared for it, but that he was eager to fight about it. And this is the type of thing that voters always respond to. Voters hate the idea of candidates who are taking support for granted. They always like people who are eager to get into the fight and and don't look like they think they're going to be coronated. And Biden has been like that at every turn and all through the debates. He won almost every one of the debates he was in. You know, I, mm-hmm. there were there were one or two debates where he was the second best guy on the stage, but there were no debates where he was a loser. There were no debates where he was in the bottom half. He and so th- this idea that this is again, I just don't understand the Trump campaign's thinking to posit the idea that Biden is going to somehow come out and uh, be just drooling on himself and look like it's elder abuse or something like that has never made any sense. Well, and 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 they've and they've spent a huge amount of money on it. And in in in, in Trump world, people have been fed this steady diet of these edited, sometimes deceptively edited or very, you know, out of context edited little Facebook clips where every single stutter, every single you know blunder, you know, makes it look like the guy's completely losing it. So if you've been fed a steady diet of that. Then watching him last night would be like, whoa, what the hell? Who yeah. is this guy? And as you said in your newsletter today, the, so the Trumpian talking point has then pivoted to uh, this guy doesn't even know where he is to this guy is such a card sharp that he was getting fed the questions in advance and had produced a 7,000 word dossier in his mind that he could just pick the memorized answer out of. And that's why he looked so good. Yeah, he's, like, really, he's, which is it there, people? He's so bad he memorized the whole thing. This is the, my favorite part about this. You can tell without watching a minute of it um, how well it went by looking at, say, Bill O'Reilly. Looks to me that Biden had an idea of what the questions would be, at least, you know, areas of questioning and other people's, you know, I mean, the president suggesting he must be taking performance enhancing drugs because nobody is that. I mean, really? Yeah. <laughs> <It's, laughs> performance enhancing drug. I mean, it's the craziest 
it's the craziest thing ever. But so here's here's what gets to the heart of what what makes me really despair about the future of our democracy. The type of attack that Trump has used on Biden over mental competence would never have been really practicable 10 years ago pre-internet, right? Not pre-internet, but you know, pre pre-dominance of social media because people reality would have forced itself on people, right? You know, you would have eventually seen Joe Biden and thought to yourself, "Oh, actually that thing I read about him turns out not to be true." And what the social media silo allows you to do is it allows you to just construct a totally alternate reality. Yeah. In which if you are a Trump voter, you never actually have to see the real Joe Biden. You could you could go an entire year, an entire presidential cycle even through the primaries, only seeing the supercuts that Facebook is pushing to you because uh, Trump is greasing the wheels of mad world news or somebody like that. Yeah, I, I'm hesitating this early in the morning to use the word, you know, asymmetry, but it keeps, I keep coming back to this is that, is that you, you, you take these two performances side by side and Donald Trump was, he was a disaster. I mean, he was, he was incoherent, but he's Donald Trump. So did he lose any votes? No, because that's already baked in because we already have a completely different standard. We, we, we don't treat him like a normal politician or a normal person. He's just Donald Trump. Whereas there's still the, you know, the, the tendency to look at Joe Biden and think, you know, we should treat him um, and hold him to a completely different standard. And so that that is kind of the, the asymmetry. And I, I wrote up my podcast with Charlotte Alter. I'm kind of haunted by what she was talking about. She talks about that social media as the water slide to hell and pointing out that Biden is the guy who's more vulnerable to an October surprise because nothing more than Trump, because nothing you can say about Trump is going to move his voters because they live in their own their own world out there. They can create it. There's always an excuse. There's always some sort of a, you know, even if there was a video of him shooting somebody on Fifth Avenue, she said, um, it, 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 there's a core of Trump voters that would simply say, well, that's a you know made up video or, uh, you know, this is part of a plot to get rid of him or Probably there's a subset that would think they probably had it coming, but I guess that's the that's the that's the weird world we're in. That if we, if we like to think that people are dealing in a rational basis with a level playing field, um, we're talking about Earth 2.0, not this this campaign. Yeah, you know, Charlie, what what's really happened here is that. Trump, we've talked a lot over the last few years about how Trumpism is a cult. And if you don't want to say cults, because that has negative connotations, mm -hmm. that's fine. I think it is better to think of Trump as a lifestyle brand than as a political actor. The, because his people really aren't in it for the politics. They're not in it for different marginal tax rates. They're not in it for even, as it turns out, building a wall or you know cutting immigration. They're in it for the lifestyle. What it what it what it feels to them to be able to identify publicly with a guy who hates all the people they have. In a, in a weird way, it's it's like the salt life stickers. You know, have you, do you maybe you don't get them out in Wisconsin, or maybe you do because of no. the but when you know out on the East Coast. Every fifth truck you pass has a salt life sticker on the back of it. And it's just this weird uh, working class to middle class lifestyle brand of anybody who touches the ocean for anything, whether it's fishing or surfing or uh -huh. laying on a beach. And that's basically Trump. That's that's the hats. That's the flag. That's, the, you know, some somebody uh, I think it was the Axios HBO uh, show had people on it with hats that said, if you don't like Trump, then you wouldn't like me. And that's like the craziest, the craziest thing ever, right? Who, who, who would have previously thought that, you know, if you don't like Ronald Reagan, then you and I would, you just wouldn't like me as a person. I mean, that's, well, that's, nobody, that's, right? that's what's fundamentally different about all of this. And, you know, we could, we could disagree with all of them. So I, I thought Biden did pretty well. I've been listening to a lot of the pundits talking about, well, all eyes are going to be on the debate. Well, we have to wait for the debate. I think you wrote about this a couple of uh, weeks ago. Um, I, I, I completely agree. Well, I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I don't think the debates are going to make that much of a difference. And all the people who are saying this is a real danger for Biden, I think have it exactly opposite. Because yeah. if, if Biden shows up, and this has now become almost a cliche, if he just shows up and turns in a performance that's half as good as last night, people are going to go, wow, so apparently Joe Biden is not senile. So I think his upside is better than his downside. Plus, Trump is convinced 
that that ugly is a winning strategy. And um, I would say that's questionable at this point in the campaign. Yeah, I, I just don't get that there the pool of undecided voters is very big at this point. You know, I really the, the polling data seems to be it's at most 13 percent. It's probably closer to six percent. And of those people, you got to understand that they're so low information to begin with that the idea that they're going to really hone in on the nuances of a debate and that's going to be what tilts them. I just don't buy that. If you're so low information that at this point in the race, you aren't, you don't know who you're going to vote for, then what you're ultimately going to vote for is probably going to be some big macro factor. Like you just decide that the pandemic is too much for you or the, you know, the unemployment rate is too much for you or something like that. It's not going to be because you watch the debate and you listened to the, you know, the, the climate change economic proposal that Biden said, you really thought to yourself, I just think that's unworkable. No, no, I can't vote for that. You know, like it, we're, we're ascribing, you're, you're ascribing to think that the debate really matters is to ascribe to people who know almost nothing about politics, that they're suddenly going to be so interested in the minutia that that's what's going to move. Well, that's them. the other thing is also the, the people who are probably undecided are among the least likely to actually sit and watch the debate. And of course, yeah. both sides, both sides will be out with their YouTube videos and their Facebook posts saying that they had uh, destroyed the other person and yada, yada, yada. Okay. So I, there is something rather extraordinary happening. And I, I'm, I understand that nothing matters. Nothing ever moves. And I, I, I get all that, except that this, this pattern, what, what's happening now with Trump administration insiders coming out and saying, you know, uh, this guy is dangerously unfit is pretty extraordinary. And I feel relatively confident in saying this has never happened before on this scale in modern presidential history. Can you think of any parallel to it? What am I missing? No, no, no there is no parallel to it. It's, well, it's the most astonishing thing. And it's not just the top level people like Mattis and Rex Tillerson and John Kelly, who have said in varying degrees of anonymity, and then on the record that Donald Trump is a danger to America. But it's then high level anonymous staffers like uh, Miles Taylor. And now yesterday, Olivia Troy, is that how we say your name? Um, you, you got it. Yeah, I, uh, I think yeah. so. Yeah. Who came out with the Republican Voters Against Trump video explaining her role Troy, as a yeah. staffer on the, the coronavirus task force backing up Pence. And it is you, this is not. This has never happened before. Okay, let's, 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 let's just play this. Let's play the video. And um, just a, a caution, she, she speaks very quickly. Okay, so just like, this is, this is uh, she's, a, she's, a, she's a fast talker, but it's, for some reason, this one really hit me as unusually powerful. And we'll talk about that on the other side. So here is, uh, here's Miss Troy. I'm Olivia Troy. I was Homeland Security and Counterterrorism Advisor to Vice President Pence and served as Vice President Pence's lead staff member on the COVID-19 response. You know, I've been on the COVID task force from day one. I mean, the virus was very unpredictable at the beginning. There were a lot of unknowns, but towards the middle of February, we knew it wasn't a matter of if COVID would become a big pandemic here in the United States. It was a matter of one. But the president didn't want to hear that because his biggest concern was that we were in election year and how is this going to affect what he considered to be his record of success. It was shocking to see the president saying that the virus was a hoax, saying that everything's okay when we know that it's not. The truth is he doesn't actually care about anyone else but himself. He made a statement once that was very striking. I never forgot it because it pretty much defined who he was. When we were in a task force meeting, the president said, maybe this COVID thing is a good thing. I don't like shaking hands with people. I don't have to shake hands with these disgusting people. Those disgusting people are the same people that he claims to care about. These are the people still going to his rallies today who have complete faith in who he is. If the president had taken this virus seriously, or if he had actually made an effort to tell how serious it was, he would have slowed the virus spread. He would have saved lives. It was the opportunity in honor of a lifetime to be able to serve in the White House. I put my heart and soul into this role every single day. But at some point, I would come home at night, I would look myself in the mirror and say, are you really making a difference? Does it matter? Because no matter how hard you work and what you do, the president is going to do something that is detrimental to keeping an American safe, which is why you signed up for this role. 
It was awful. It was, it was terrifying. I have been a Republican for my entire life. I am a McCain Republican. I am a Bush Republican. And I am voting for Joe Biden because I truly believe we are at a, a time of constitutional crisis. At this point, it's country over party. You know, I, I, I shared that with a, uh, a conservative friend who just was sort of speechless and said afterwards, you know, the tragedy is that everything we've worked for and we thought we believed has been destroyed, has just gone down the toilet. It's been besmirched. And the level of the destruction is just so appalling, which is, of course, not new. But really, this is this is capturing. OK, so so Jonathan. You know, it's it's it it seems to be this little bit of a flood, and you know you have John Bolton, who you can whatever you think about him, but it's you know Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis. You've had things from Rex Tillerson, the former Secretary of State. You've had the White House Chief of Staff John Kelly, former Director of National Intelligence Dan Coats, all of whom you know talked about the grave concerns they've had. You know, and they're in Bob Woodward's books, and it's it's like it is like this flood, and these people are inside the White House who've actually done with Donald Trump. And you can hear the sort of this primal scream trying to tell Trump world, you people out there, we've seen it. It's really awful. It's really awful. It's terrible. So again, this has never happened before. So give me your sense of why it's happening now. I mean, and by the way, Miles Taylor and was it, uh, you know, uh, Mrs. What was, what was Newman's Newman, first right? name? Elizabeth yeah. Newman? And every Elizabeth and every one of these is powerful. These are people who were in the room. These were people who, you know, lifelong conservatives and Republicans who actually thought that they could make a difference in the Trump administration are now coming forward and saying, no, it's not salvageable. It's terrible. Don't do this. Yeah. And it's it's important to say that they are different from people like Stuart Stevens. Right. So oh, yeah. Stuart Stevens is more of a the scales have fallen from my eyes. It turns out that all of Republicanism and all conservatism was all a lie. Right. There are a lot of right, there are, right. frankly, there are a lot of people like that. But these people are not. So you look at you look at Olivia Troy's uh, resignation letter, which the White House released yesterday in an attempt to discredit her somehow. <laughs> and the resignation letter says essentially a lot of what she says in her her video, which is that, you know, she believes it was the honor of a lifetime that the people she was working around were diligent, patriotic, wonderful Americans trying to help make the country better. And it did not say a blessed word about Donald Trump. Because that is the crux of this. What what uh, what Olivia Troy says, what Miles Taylor says, what people uh, like Bolton have said is that the, the problem is the problem is not everybody else. The problem is the chief executive of the United States and that this guy is not a bad leader, not a guy who is suboptimal, not a guy who makes bad decisions, but a person who is fundamentally unfit to hold any job of any importance. And this is I'm, I'm going to use a line with you that I, I say to Sarah a lot, but it's true. You would not hire if you owned a 7-Eleven, you would not hire Donald Trump to manage your 7-Eleven. You would not, after five spending five minutes with him, believe that he could carry out the basic tasks of hiring somebody to work the register, keeping the bathroom clean, getting the self shelves stocked, filling out time cards, because he's he's just utterly incompetent. And on top of it, is a sociopath. And on top of that, like just has real cognitive problems. Like he can't understand things, uh, and and it's just crazy to have him in the White House. And it is crazier still. The 60 million people thereabouts are going to vote for him. Okay. So I wasn't going to bring this up again because we, we beat this one to death. But but yet, given all of that, there are people like Danielle Pletka who are saying, yes, but because the Democrats might enact tax increases or the Green New Deal or abolish the filibuster, I might just have to vote for Donald Trump, give him another four years in the Oval Office. Yeah, I, I mean – so somebody like Danny Pletka is just an abject case of virtue signaling in order to help her career. And I get that. I think it's despicable, but I understand what it is. What concerns me more is the people who have nothing to gain from it, but who genuinely look at this and decide that actually this thing that we see as incompetence, they like. And mm. the 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 aggressiveness and the the way in which Trump hates the people they hate, that that's the payoff for them. And the, the idea that there are 
I'm not going to say that all 60 million Trump voters are like that, but I don't know, 10 million are, 20 million are, right? I mean, the answer is not that they're, that we're only talking about 5,000 people nationwide. It turns out that there are millions of these people and they're not going away. You know, win, lose, or draw. These people are not going to just melt into the hillside. They are now no. an activated permanent feature of American politics who have been led to the belief that they no longer have to hide all of the opinions and thoughts that they once understood were disreputable. And I just don't understand how American politics gets fixed going forward with those people as part of our system. No, I, I, I share that. But there are some conservatives who are making the argument that that as, as bad as Trump is, they are worried about the, you know, the left wing of the Democratic Party, which you know needs to be pushed back on at some point. What really strikes me, though, is the the reality of Trump, what we have seen, and the scope of his attacks on the rule of law and constitutionalism, America's role in the world, versus these sort of theoretical possibilities that are frankly unrealistic. Look, the Democrats, I don't think, are going to abolish the filibuster. You're not going to get Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema to go along with that. They're not going to be enacting the Green New Deal. These are, you know, th these are kind of fanciful sorts of things that are thrown out, a kind of low-level talking point things. AOC is not going to be the Secretary of the Treasury. And the reality is, is that is that Joe Biden had a, a debate within the Democratic Party about whether or not the Democratic Party was going to go hard left or whether it was going to stay center left and he won and he's been pretty adamant about it so when i hear people like daniel pletka and many of her de defenders it's almost like they're just looking for an excuse it's like that they, they 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 need to keep their credentials intact that they're not going to quote unquote own whatever the democrats do that they have clean hands you know in the post trump trump era because in balance, balancing the you know zero percent chance of the Green New Deal against every one of the you know all of the the mendacity of of, of Donald Trump, it doesn't even pass the you know the laugh test to say that they're equivalent. Yeah, that's right. And to, to people who who take that line, I I often say so. Okay, so who is the living Democrat who you would vote for? Over Donald Trump, right? Which 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 Democrat alive currently in America right now? And the answer is always like, well, you know, not but but if you if you went back in time, maybe I could have voted for Daniel Patrick Moynihan, you know, like, and all of this is, I think, just cover for partisanship. And there are people who are just team team elephant, right? And have been team elephant. Their their, their granddaddy was team elephant. Their daddy was team elephant. And by God, they're going to be team elephant too. And that's okay. Like that's a worldview. It's not. It's not the way I look at the world, but it's it's a perfectly valid way, I suppose. Uh, but you just have to own that. You know, like you you have to own the idea that like this isn't actually a question of balancing goods. It's just a question of identity, and that you are going to do that no matter what by God. And you're going to do that if the team elephant is the 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 team that is in favor of robust international interventionism and you're going to do it if team elephant is an isolationist america first place too and i you know i i just think there isn't actually room in in public life for people like that because yep. you know who cares what you think right once once you have decided that you're just an activist for somebody then uh, that's great go be an activist in some or something and work on get out the vote but you know get the hell out of the public square because we don't need you Okay, you had a debate the other day in your your, your newsletter, and I'm uh, I have it in front of me here, and and I've gone back and forth on this as well. Actually, this is a premature debate, um, and I'm not sure which side I'm going to definitively come down on. But the whole question of it, people are debating it: should we, after he leaves office, prosecute Donald Trump? I mean, there are strong arguments that, of course, you you prosecute him if he broke the law because no one is above the law. He is not immune from the law, and we have to validate that. But there are also people on the other side who go, yes, you could do that, but is it the smart, prudent thing to do given how divisive it would be, given the political fallout that there would be? Where did you come down on that? Yeah, well, I mean, first, obviously, is you got to remove him from office first, but right. you know, one way or another. Yeah. And so this is putting the cart before the horse. Yeah. My own tentative conclusion is that the wise course of action would be to not prosecute him, at least federally. You know, the, the Biden administration, the incoming Biden administration should not be involved in a prosecution of the Trump family. Uh, 
this is not because that's what justice deserves or what the rule of law. It clearly would be a subversion of the rule of law. It clearly would be a subversion of the interest of justice. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, neither one of these pathways are good ones. And we're looking for the least bad option out and the option which gives the country the best chance to not simply break apart over the next 10 or 20 years. Yeah. You know, as I, as I said to you, the, the, we do have like somewhere between 10 and 40 million Americans who like Donald Trump purely because he hates other Americans and the same Americans they hate. Uh, if we could, if we could bring that number down by like 30 or 40%, that would be good for us, right? Yeah, my, when I say that we shouldn't prosecute him because it'd be too divisive, I do not mean that the decision to not prosecute him would result in a moment of national unity where the whole country would go back together. Uh, what I mean is that you have a chance to leach some percentage of the poison out of the system and that if you could do that, that would be worth it, right? If you could reduce the number of people who are the super duper MAGA heads who are going to show up at the Lansing state capitol with long guns and try to intimidate legislatures uh, through the threats of gun violence, if you could reduce that number by like 40%, that would be a good worth doing. And there are other things you could do. You yeah. could have a truth and reconciliation commission. You could have a something like a 9-11 commission report to give a full and utter accounting of what happened. And certainly all the state AGs should, you know, can be free to do whatever they want. But I just don't think we should be in the business of prosecuting the the former president. Okay. So I, I think that distinction is important. The, the Biden administration itself probably should not be prosecuting. Um, the state AGs obviously have no control over them. It's still a criminal trial. It would still be, it would still have a lot of the same political fallout. This is one of those issues where I'm, I'm tempted to have a debate someday, having a podcast where we flip the coin. And, you know, heads, heads all argue yes, heads <laughs> tails all argue no, because it there is sometimes the right thing to do that is not the prudent thing to do is you know and it would do more damage to the body politic i don't know what the answer is the problem is with the persistence of trumpism and you've made this point donald trump does not go away donald, trumpism becomes a huge thing so the fight against trumpism will extend after his presidency and to the extent that a trial and a criminal conviction might discredit Trumpism going forward might block him from running in 2024, um, at least needs to be on the table. But again, this really is very, very much, um, you know, putting the heart, uh, card ahead of the horse. Okay. So, uh, let's just talk, uh, some rank punditry here in terms of the, the numbers, the polling numbers, the white knuckle polling, as I, as I call it, uh, you know, what strikes me is how stunningly consistent these numbers have been since really the the middle of last year, haven't they? Yeah. What are you what are you looking at most closely, and what trends are you seeing? Uh, the trends we seem to be seeing are basically the same. I mean, we're you know Donald Trump's approval rating is like forty three percent, which is really really bad for an incumbent yeah. president. That is Jimmy Carter territory. Uh, his his deficit to Biden is a solid five to seven points, depending on which polling average you're looking at. Uh, and Biden is often above 50, which is That's typically the, the magic right. number, right? And mm -hmm. Now, all of this, of course, is, you know, we, we have state polling too, and uh, that matters the most. But the, we have more and better quality state polls than we did in 2016. Uh, I, I do tend to think, though, that what we will what you look for in incumbent races, because this is you know the difference between 2016 and 2020, the, the big difference is just one one race was an incumbent and one race was a race was an open seat. And in incumbent races, there is often a late break. Right. Uh, and it, if things are going badly for the incumbent, it's almost always against the incumbent. And if we see that nationally, then we are likely to see it at the state levels too. Now, it might be muted; it might not be of the same magnitude. But that—that's why, again, I the state levels, the state level polls are the more important polls. 
but on the other hand, the national level polls, I think, are still quite valuable right now. Well, and we got some new ones this morning um, in, in from Arizona, Maine, and North Carolina. Arizona, it looks like he's going to lose Arizona. I mean, at this point, you got... Oh, you yeah, have, that's uh, gone. Arizona's yeah. gone, like Michigan which, is. Which, by the way, is um, a huge development. You know, and look, I'm I'm Wisconsin-centric. I've always been Wisconsin-centric. But y- you you flip Arizona, and the math changes uh, significantly. So if, if Arizona is gone and Michigan are gone, boy, uh, that that is a really high hill for for Trump to uh, to to, uh, to mount. So in Arizona, you have the uh, Democratic candidate for Senate, uh, Mark Kelly, who is leading Martha McSally by eight points in this new New York Times Siena poll. Uh, she's done uh, in Maine. Once again, uh, you have uh, Sarah Gideon, the Democrat leading Susan Collins by five points. I think uh, Susan Collins was the one person I thought was going to survive, possibly. She's no, in trouble. She's toast, big, I think. Big margin for uh, Biden in Maine. North Carolina, much tougher, much closer. Um, but the Democratic challenger to Tom Tillis, leading by five points, which is, and Tom Tillis is right now pulling 37% of the vote. So you take, you, you flip, you flip North Carolina and uh, Michigan and Arizona. Um, that, 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 in, in, 20, in 2020, it's important to remember that Trump ran behind almost every single Republican Senate candidate. Right. People uh, forget only, that. The only candidates he ran ahead of, I think, were Roy Blunt and there's one other. I forget who the other one was. Uh, it might have been Toomey, um, hmm. they, but don't don't quote me on that. Uh, it, it seems to me difficult to believe that uh, he's going to run far ahead of Tom Tillis in North Carolina. I mean, right now he's pulling ahead of him, but when when actual push comes to shove, are you going to have a lot of people who show up and vote for Donald Trump, but against Tom Tillis? That that just doesn't scan to me. So I don't know. I mean, I, I you look at it again. Arizona is simply gone. You should take it off the board. Michigan is gone. I think the Trump campaign is actually close to pulling resources out of Michigan. I believe they've already pulled out of Arizona. Uh, the math is just really, really hard for him right now, and it doesn't mean it's impossible. But it, he has to bank on us getting a total black swan result because of the pandemic. I mean, that, that's what the Trump, right, the Trump right. campaign strategy is basically. Well, we just roll the dice and maybe the total. So the total vote share, I think, was a hundred hundred thirty one votes last time around. Maybe is that right now? No, that's mm-hmm. not right. Sorry. About one hundred twenty one million votes last time. around. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he we could get 140 million votes or we could get 100 million votes. You know, I mean, that's that's how wide the spread is. And nobody has any idea what's going to happen here. And the entire Trump campaign strategy at this point is to just roll the dice and hope that we get some weirdo turnout result where just because of the pandemic and masks and polling stations and absentee ballots and early vote ballots, he just lucks into something. Well, or or create enough chaos and enough litigation and enough doubt that uh, he can challenge the legitimacy of the election and which which he clearly wants to do. I mean, he clearly and, and it's very much on brand for him to do. Um well, and he'll but have to do. I, I mean, it's he will do it. He will do it. If he yeah. loses, he will do it. Because the question then becomes, does he do it in earnest or as a demonstration effect? Exactly. Uh, if he is more interested in launching Trump TV or whatever his next scheme is, then it will be a demonstration effect where he teases people with, you know, this is this is illegitimate. You got to come with me if you want to find out the real story. Or is he doing it because he really thinks that he can hold on to the White House? And that's when it becomes dangerous. That's when it becomes very, very dangerous. So, you know, we'll, 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 we'll see going forward. But I also think that the phenomenon of early voting changes the changes the normal pace. Uh, and I think I mentioned this the other day that people keep talking about an October surprise. Well, by, the, by October, by the time that we expect that surprise, a lot of people will have already voted. So if you're going to have an October surprise, it would be September. And what really strikes me is how with every single week, and you made this point kind of far out that there really wasn't as much time as people thought. Every single week that he doesn't turn things around is a, is, is a week that he's losing. And I just don't see that he's done that yet. I mean, you've had these one big blow after another. You had the Atlantic story about him, uh, you know, with, with the veterans, which had a much greater impact than I would have expected, you know, then followed by the Woodward book. And then within the next five days, we're going to hit 200,000 deaths on the coronavirus. I mean, these are stories 
that the he you know he's trying desperately to change the narrative and i just don't see how he's going to do it of course he's going to declare you know a vaccine but who knows how that's going to play out so charlie this is a serious question for you when is the last good when when's the last time trump won a week kenosha maybe he was potentially going to win Kenosha, but then he blew it, I think. Um, right. This is what I'm saying. I, I don't think that Trump has won a week of this race dating back to February, honestly. I, I, hmm. I just don't think even even the Republican convention didn't quite work for him. Uh, I mean, he just did. To think that suddenly he's going to turn things around. No, I could. There has been no ability to turn it around. He's just, no, been, it's been loss after loss after loss for 20 weeks on end at this point. Yeah. And, and, and the debates will not be the moment he turns it around because, you know, again, you know, if he, if he thinks angry, insulting, um, uh, ugly is, is going to turn things around, I don't think it is. I think it's going to be an interesting contrast. What strikes me right now, though, is sort of the, the silence of Senate Republicans, congressional Republicans about a variety of things. You notice how low key they are lately? And and I guess I, I don't want to indulge in naive hope, but there is one more off ramp for the Republicans, which will be after the election, if in fact, you know, he tries to foment chaos or or, or tries to challenge the legitimacy of the election and hang on. And that off ramp will be for some Republicans to stand up and say, no. Um, we need to follow the Constitution. We need to, uh, you know, uphold democratic norms. And you know, unfortunately, you lost, but you have to go. Uh, that that sort of quasi Goldwater going to Nixon. Okay, I'm, I'm naive, what do you right? think Isn't the odds it? are of that happening, Charlie? Thirty <sighs> percent. What do you I think? Mean, <laughs> so, the, 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 to me, the bigger question is: Do Republican elected Republicans go into turtle guard where they say things like, I, I don't read the president's Twitter feed. I'm sorry. I don't know what right, you're talking right. about. Or do they say, you people are often, really? Like Martha, Martha McSally does. Or do they affirmatively push back against him? Uh, I'm sorry. Or do they affirmatively defend him? You know, I, I can't imagine a world in which more people than Ben uh, Sass and Mitt Romney uh, actively push back against Trump. The rest will either feign uh, ignorance of of you know the president of the United States disputing the results of a presidential election, or they will affirmatively talk around uh, talk around it and say, you know, well, you know, he's ra- he's just raising questions. We really ought to have a full full accounting of this because they're this raising questions. With, this is what they've done with the cranks for their whole lives, and. You know, I saw a lot of this when I was inside Conservatism Inc. And, you know, you'd sit down with a bunch of rich Republicans and they would say things like, well, actually, George Soros is, you know, spending money to bring Mexican drug dealers into America. And you would look at them and, you know, there was always the temptation to to not push back against them because, you know, they're rich Republican types sitting with you on your, you know, at your panel or whatever. And, you know, want to be nasty. But on the other hand, you know, like it's crazy and you'd have to say, no, that's nuts. And, but that's not what, what uh, elected Republicans do. They don't push back against the people. I mean, look, no, look, they, at, the, look they, at the QAnon well, lady from Georgia, right? Who's now being welcomed oh, with open arms. <laughs> well, let me get the, you're almost certainly right. I mean, I'm, I'm going to give you a nine out of 10 chances of being right here. The, the, the one glimmer of hope that I would cling to, because there's a little bit of naivete left in me, is when the president when when Trump suggested delaying the election, possibly all the Republicans, you know, from Mitch McConnell on down, basically immediately came out and said, "No, we're not doing that. We're not doing that. We're not," you know, and they and they and they shut that down. So who who knows? No, the well, pushback, hold on, yeah. hold on, though, Charlie. Yeah, yeah, they pushed back against it, but only because he then went along with them. If he had kept going with that. Do you think they would have kept up the resistance? I I viewed that pushback as like the Tom Tillis uh, declaration that there was no way he was going to vote for the emergency funding of the wall. And you, know, you remember that? Like is, you know, the Tom Tillis op-ed saying, I'm here to defend the Constitution. Well, I'm, we're not going to. Well, let me, give you the, let me give you the reverse of that, though, is that he stopped. He, he, he backed off immediately, which is an indication that when they did, if, if they did stand up to him, they could get him to back off, which suggests that if they had done it in the past on other issues, maybe they would have made a difference. 
that there are times when they push back and he goes, okay, that's it. But you're right. I mean, they, they would have, you know, but we don't know because it, it didn't happen. Yeah. I, right? I think that it's possible that early on they could have, could have had the whip hand with him. But this is, I mean, you have to give Trump credit for his, his one real thing is that he, he really does understand weakness. Yeah. Broken. And he's a guy with, with a nose for weakness. And he understood, you know, from, from the day Reince showed up at his office, uh, you know, with the, the piece of paper saying that there would be peace in our time, that Trump would, you know, Trump had vowed to support the Republican nominee no matter what. And Reince is waving it around like he, he just won some magic victory while he's clutching his umbrella in the other hand. <laughs> and he, you know, from that moment on, Trump knew he owned this party. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about what, what, what we're up to. Can we do that? Sure. Because if, if people have listened this far into the podcast, they're, they're part of the bulwark universe. They, they, they know who we are. They know what we've been doing. And listen to the podcast. Hopefully, they also read the newsletters and look at the website. And so, Jonathan, let's talk about Bulwark Plus because we unveiled this yesterday. And what is it? So it's a, a new level, new level, a new level of membership for people who donate to support us. We're a nonprofit organization. We have not run any advertising. We've tried to keep everything we do totally open and free to everybody, but we've always done special stuff for our donors with, without even telling us, you know, we, we yeah. had these premiums running without ever actually telling anybody. There's another podcast. Yeah. We kept it secret. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Which is why and, it's called the secret podcast. So we've, we've, we have grown, I think it's fair to say, I don't want to speak for you beyond what we ever thought was possible. Yes. No, totally. Right. I mean, when we started out, we had no idea. We were like, okay, we'll just see what happens here. And we've got this huge audience now and having an audience then opens up other pathways for you and ways to ways that you can grow and get bigger and do other interesting things. And with Bulwark Plus is going to, Essentially, David, is it the first time we've ever really gone to people and asked for money? I mean, a lot of we've had thousands of people donating to us without us ever, ever even mm-hmm. asking. And so this is a way of formalizing that and saying, hey, please come support us. Uh, come join what we're doing. Toss us a few bucks. It's 10 bucks a month or 100 bucks a year. And as a thank you for that, we're going to give you access to a couple of our our lesser podcasts, uh, the secret show and the next level that I do, but we're going to keep the, the big ones, the, the big boy podcast mm-hmm. that you do and that Mona Charon does with Peg to Differ totally open for everybody. We're going to keep the website totally open for everybody free, no ads ever. Uh, and then we're going to take your newsletter and my newsletter, which have cult followings, I think, and make those only for the people who are, who are donating and supporting to mm-hmm. us. And, uh, I think it's a pretty good deal. I'm I'm a subscription junkie. I mean, I I like you know in my newsletter, I'm constantly telling people to give money to other publications. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm saying like, hey, this thing over <laughs> here is great. You should go support it. Hey, this thing over here is great. You should go support it. And this is the first time that we're doing it for us and saying, please come support us. And uh, I don't know. So far, it's going really well, and I it like is. it. And I think we're going to be doing able to do all sorts of exciting stuff because of this. I've been a little bit terrified uh, about how it was going to go. I don't know about you. You seem, you've seemed much more confident about all of this than I, than I was. Well, because I, I know how, how loyal some of our followers are. And I, and I, and I know, um, you know, that they think we're playing an important role here. And I, I'm always struck by how thoughtful and how thoughtful they are and, and how, you know, that they're looking for some sort of non-tribal, non-insane outlets to follow. And so let me look back and, and look forward for a second here, because, you know, just I want to underline what, what you said before, because, you know, when we started this thing from scratch, I mean, there was no planning. There were no whiteboards. Uh, the Weekly Standard was killed on December 14th, and the bulwark was up and running by January 7th. Think about that for a second. Yeah. I know, and you you might recall that the initial discussions were okay. Um, this will we'll keep this going for like three months, and then see what happens. Right? Yeah, that was the <laughs> then, we were Okay, see. maybe we'll get through the end of the year, and then suddenly, what happened? You know, people, you know, the, the audience began to grow. People began to come to us. We had this incredibly talented core staff, uh, but we were able to attract uh, you know some just brilliant, fascinating uh, writers. Uh, you know, on my podcast, I made a list initially of like, you know, in my wildest fantasies, 
who would I want to have on the podcast? We not only got all of those people, but many of them have been multiple guests. So here we are two years in, and this has become something that we never really imagined. So, you know, part of this is we want to keep growing, but also sustaining, which is to go forward. So that's the past. The future, people are wondering, like, well, what happens to the bulwark? After the election, if Donald Trump is gone, what does the bulwark do? And I think this is our, this is our kind of statement that hey, we got this democracy to save, right? I mean, this this argument's not over. This doesn't end. Yeah, there. I I would say this: our audience has wound up being very different from what I thought it was going to be when we started. You know, I thought we would have a bunch of never Trump disaffected conservatives as our as our listeners and readers. And it turns out that that's been about half of the audience and the other half has been people from the left, you know, yeah. mostly from the center left, people who are and the people from the left, they tend to be people who either are desperate to have a sane conservative yes. wing because they think that you need the yin and yang to have a healthy mm-hmm. successful liberal democracy. Uh, and also people who are a little bit nervous about the the far far left progressive wing, which is, you know, as radical as as it always is. Right. And so our, we have this weird bifurcated audience and those people are talking to each other through through the site, which is which is interesting. You know, we that's why the site is I would say we have a, a huge number of contributors to the site who are quite liberal and to the left mm-hmm. of where you and I are. Well, it's the left of where you are. <laughs> and uh, and so we're sort of fumbling our way in the dark towards finding what sort of political ground both of these groups can occupy and seeing if that you can you can lay down a marker there and build something around that and it's this is important to say i i have no interest in when i say no interest in partisanship um it, it's really for both sides i i have no interest in going into like knee jerk opposition mode for if there's a Biden administration, like we're just going to continue to call things the way we see it and to try to build something new where we're standing here. Uh, and I don't know, I'm, I'm just super excited about that. Uh, it would be less exciting to do in a, in a Trump administration, frankly, but, but actually maybe more important, honestly, if he winds up being reelected. Uh, but that's, that's where we're going forward. And it's, I think it's kind of exciting to have some. No, I, 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 I think I think so too, and especially I mean, for people who don't pass over what you just said about how we you know what we say, what we we think, this has been very liberating for me. I don't know how you feel about it, but totally. you know, I had fallen, I had fallen into some of that partisan tribalism, you know, where it was us versus them, and you, 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 you live from one news cycle to, I mean, one election cycle to another, you know, pushing your guy who turns out to be not at all who you thought he was. So, you know, with the Trump era and the quasi-excommunication of folks like us, it, it really was liberating to say, okay, you know what, we're, we're going to talk to different people, we're going to make different alliances, and you know what, we're free to ask questions and to challenge orthodoxies in a way that we weren't before. And I have to say, this has been one of the most intellectually interesting and stimulating periods. And I think people look back on this as, as a period of real creativity and ferment. And I think the bulwark has really been part of that because, as you point out, we're kind of working our way through this. Is there a new center-left, center-right, uh, you know, consensus is probably the wrong word, but there's a Venn diagram. And we differ on a lot of different stuff, but where we, we where we have shared values and you know, rule of law, fundamental decency, character, um, actually believing that you know America is great because it, it actually has some fundamental values. I mean, that's that's an interesting thing to work through, and we're going to be working through that for quite a long time. Yeah, and and really rejecting. Honestly, if I, rejecting the the progress towards a European style politics, where you have you know where the conservatism in European style politics is genuinely, uh, genuinely nationalist in in all the worst ways, right? It's a blood and soil type nationalism, yeah. and also resisting the the real full bore socialism, which you know is what the far the far left of European politics looks like. And I am not under any illusions that there is a giant governing coalition of people like us toward the center. Um, I don't think it is 50% of America that sort of sits where, you know, Mm -hmm. to the left and the right of where we are. But, but as it turns out, it's not 2% either. (laughs) It turns out there, it's a big country and there are an awful lot of people who, who are interested in this. Yeah. 
and who are also just thrilled to be able to listen to people they disagree with so long as the people are not like Danny Pletka posturing. You know, I mean, this is they, they are happy to listen to opinions they disagree with just so long as they understand that the person who is on the other side of it isn't isn't just doing it as a work because they're positioning themselves for some future gig down the line. Yeah, there may be disagreements, but at least it's good faith disagreements. And this is one of the this has been one of the real pleasures of doing this podcast is every day I get to sit sit down here and talk to really interesting people about things that actually matter. And we may not always agree, but uh, you know, to have a you know a thoughtful conversation, I, I I think that one thing that the success of the Bulwark has has proven is that there there was an audience for this kind of commentary. You know, there was when when we launched this, people were saying, "Well, like, who wants to read that sort of stuff? Who you know is there an audience for you know a conservative publication that's going to be anti-Trump?" And there were a lot of eye rolling and people who made very confident predictions about how quickly we would go out of business and. When in fact it turned out to be much more of an appetite than I think you and I thought there was going to be. Yeah, it's been great. It's been a lot of fun, and again, we wouldn't be we wouldn't be doing the Bulwark Plus thing if if the audience hadn't gotten so big. Like this is this is just a pathway that has opened uh, that we never really never imagined would be there. And uh, yeah, I'm excited. But we would uh, certainly, you know, um, we, we've we've shown you for the last two years what we're doing. I think the proof of performance is there. A lot of folks will say, this is what we will do, uh, you know, join us or subscribe to us. But I think you kind of know, those of you that have been listening and reading and following us, you, you know what we've done, you know who we are, and what we are going to continue to do over some time. So uh, if you could just check us out, we... If you go to the the website uh, Bulwark Plus, we have we do describe what we're doing. Uh, if you go to our newsletters, there are ways to subscribe. Um, we're we're not, we're not going to be dropping any paywall. Um, we're going to make that clear. The, the the site will remain completely free. The podcast, uh, this podcast, is going to remain free. Um, and if you go to the newsletters, we we are going to create a a would you say a suite of things for the people who join us in membership, including podcasts and newsletters and, and a variety of other things going forward. Because you know what? Two years ago, we had no idea where we would be now. And I can't say confidently, do we know what we're going to look like two years from now? Yeah, I think Except that's right. Better. We don't know what the going to look like two years from now. But, exactly. Uh, I think we're, we're a force for good. I think we are a force for good. I think that ought to be our slogan. Jonathan Last, thank you so much for joining us on the Weekend Bulwark podcast. Appreciate it very much. Thanks, Charlie. And thank you for listening to the Bulwark podcast uh, this weekend. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back on Monday.